Bring us the Lord. Aren't you glad to be in the house of the Lord tonight? Amen. 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 Jeremy, a few weeks ago, he let me know that they'd be traveling and that's we fill in for a few weeks. And, and, uh, first, I was just going to be doing this week and, and then the week of the 30th will be our youth camp uh, and then do our conversation. And he said, well, you want that middle week take me too? And I said, well, you know, I, uh, I, I've been studying on something for a while and I thought about doing a series on it. I hadn't had the opportunity yet. And so it, it worked out something that I had studied the Lord just laid on my heart quite a while ago and uh, I want to share that with you of course in the next three weeks I, I don't I don't do do real good at teaching because I, I sort of get carried away uh, I, I like to teach I like to slow down but brother Moses I will never be Maybe I can get Brother Moses on Sugar Shock. I don't, I don't know. I, but I'll do my best to slow down and maybe hold on to the pulpit. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how that's going to work. But uh, I, I want to teach, uh, begin tonight, the next course of the next three weeks, and I won't get nearly done um, tonight, obviously. But uh, the Lord dealt with me a while back, and I began to do some study on the Beatitudes. I don't, I don't recall... I've been around church 35 years old. I don't recall really ever hearing much teaching on the attitudes. Maybe you have. I don't. And uh, but but God laid that on my heart, and I, I just think this is a good place to start. So I want to draw my text. I won't read all of these because we'll get to these over the course of the next few weeks. But I want to read to you from the book of Matthew, chapter number five. And we're going to read the, well, we'll go ahead and read the entire passage here. I, I think that's, that's good, a good place. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 5, verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Excuse me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. God bless you. You can be seated tonight. Thank you. Standing for the reading of the word of the Lord. Bible scholars agree that the Gospel of Matthew uh, was written somewhere between the years 80, 80 and 80, 90 
which was 50 to 60 years uh, after the advent of the church uh, and the, the, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is a testament to how fantastic and amazing uh, and supernatural, if you will, it is that we have the Gospels. Because most of the Gospels were not written in real time. They were written in the last years of the apostles and the disciples' lives as they realized we, we, we needed to write down, they were inspired by the Holy Ghost to write down what their experiences are. That's, that's why G.A. Mangan, when he would teach and, and preach on the praying the tabernacle, when he, before, in, in the tabernacle prayer, before he would go in uh, from the holy place to the most holy place in the tabernacle prayer, there's four pillars there. He said, I called them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John where I would thank God for the Gospels. Because it's in the Gospels that we learn about every miracle that Jesus did. And without the Gospels, we wouldn't know what He could do. Without the Gospels, we wouldn't know that He was a healer. We wouldn't know that He could cast out devils. We wouldn't know that He was a comforter. Without the, the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, moving on men of old, we wouldn't know anything that we know today about Jesus. I'm so thankful that we know what we know. I'm so thankful that God moved upon the heart of Matthew and a man named Luke and a man named Mark and a man named John to write down their treatise of what they saw and what they observed so that today you and I can know what Jesus was like and we can know what he preached and we can know what he performed while on the earth. And all Bible scholars agree that the Gospel of Matthew was, was uh, broken into five discourses or, or five uh, uh, I, I guess you would say kind of acts in a play, if you will. It, 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 all of his teaching in the book of Matthew was broken into five distinct se uh, sections or segments, beginning with the Sermon on the Mount in, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Mission Discourse in chapter number 10, then we have the Parabolic Discourse which was uh, in chapter 13, which was the seven parables. He gets the parable of the sower, the parable uh, of the wheat, the parable of the tares. Then the fourth is the discourse on the church in chapter number 18, where he begins to tell about the church. And then lastly, Jesus gives a discourse on the end times in chapter number 24. and lets us know that things uh, that would be coming. The setting for what has been known is that first discourse. Uh, what we know is a sermon on the, on the mount, although most people look at it as chapter 5, 6, and 7. It doesn't begin there. It does not begin in chapter number 5 because in chapter number 5, the Bible just says he saw a bunch of people, and I'm paraphrasing, this is the Brandon Shakes version. He, he saw a bunch of people in the mountain, so he sat down and began to teach them. So we really have to go back a few chapters to chapter number 3 of the book of Matthew because it's here that John the Baptist declares to the Pharisees, there's one coming after me. He says, I baptize you with water, but there's one that comes after me Whose shoe latching I'm not worthy to unloose. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. And it's almost seemingly in the echo of John's voice that the Bible says that as soon as he said those things, that Jesus came to John to be baptized. And although John said, said it's not meet for me, it's not fit for me to baptize you, Jesus said, I want you to go ahead and do it. Because it fulfilleth righteousness. I'm setting an example. I'm setting the example of what believers will need to do hereafter. And so chapter 3 slowly fades into chapter 4. Where we find Jesus fasting for 40 days and 
40 nights in the wilderness and being tempted of the devil. And when he leaves this setting, the Bible immediately turns, and it almost turns on a dime, and says that Jesus leaves this place and he leaves Nazareth and he goes to fulfill what the prophet said that he would go and do. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17 says, From that time, at that moment, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Gospel of Mark says it just a little bit differently in Mark chapter 1, verse number 15. And he adds a little bit and says, And say, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye, and believe the gospel. The Bible said he goes and he heals all manner of sicknesses. He heals all manners of palsies. He delivers demoniacs. He, he heals and delivers the lunatics. And because of this, his fame spreads all throughout the land. And in Matthew chapter number 4, verse 25, the Bible said, And there followed him great multitudes of people from Galilee and from Decapolis and from Jerusalem and from Judea and from beyond Jordan. And if you look at a map and you look from Galilee to Decapolis, Decapolis was ten uh, nations that stretched into Assyria. If you look at Jerusalem, it's smack dab in the middle of all of it. And then you look at Judea and then look east toward of Jordan. This is a large swath of land. This is a pretty big uh, geographical location. But his fame spread so much that people came to hear his gospel. And this is our setting. This is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. Because he began to preach the gospel. I find it compelling that although Matthew was broken into five general discourses, that the first uh, recorded discourse in Matthew's gospel is that Jesus is sitting and teaching the basics. Paul told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse number 2, I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto you were not able to hear it, to bear it. He started with the basics. He started when you've got to hear the gospel and you've got to believe the gospel. There's some folks that want to dive into the gifts of the Spirit, but before you can get to the gifts of the Spirit, you've got to get filled with the Spirit and you've got to walk in the Spirit. Folks want to get out in the wild blue yonder and spiritualism, but before you get there, you've got to obey the basics. Before you get out into the deep things, you've got to get into the shallow things. The Bible said that the prophets, when he saw the Spirit of the Lord coming out of the temple of God, it started at the ankles, and then it went to the knees, then it went to the loins, and then it got into waters that carried away waters to swim in. Then you've got to start with the basics, and Jesus started with basics. Jesus' first message was very simple. Repent and believe the gospel. And before the people can believe the gospel, they must first hear the gospel. How then shall they call on him of whom they not believe, Romans says. And how shall they believe in him of whom they not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Before he could go on and preach about alms, before he could go on and preach about prayer, before he would go on and preach about fastings, before he would go and preach about watchfulness, 
before he would teach the parables, he started first with a message of how we could enter the kingdom. Before we can get into any, it doesn't matter what you believe about fasting. If you don't believe the gospel and how to enter the kingdom, you can fast all you want and it won't help you. You can believe all you want about the end times, but if you don't enter the kingdom first, all that belief won't help you. There's those that right now are, are, are trying to figure out what the book of Enoch means and, and how uh, what, what all the, the, the mysticism and the, the secret things and they, they want to get into the mysteries of God's word, but they've not yet began the basics. Before you can begin trying to dive in to what Daniel's vision was, before you can get in to try to figure out what John saw, first you got to repent and you got to believe the gospel. Jesus said the first thing that matters is that you believe the gospel, that you get in the church. All those other things can get added later. But what matters first is that you get in the church. Man. Some people have said, and I would probably say too, that the Beatitudes can be likened to the characteristics of a Christian. And I, and I, can, I believe that, and maybe I'll write a book on that one day. But, but it's also been said that the attitudes are like a spiritual mountain climbing. They're steps that lead into the divine life. Because when you climb a mountain, you don't start halfway up. you got to start at base camp. you got to start at the bottom. And you work your way up gradually. When you go to climb Everest, you don't you don't start midway up. They don't fly a helicopter and parachute you in and start you halfway up. No, you start at the bottom because you got to get acclimated to the climate. And when they get to the second base, they stay a few days so you can get acclimated to the climate. When they go to the next base camp, they stay a few days so you can get acclimated to the climate. And it's an iterative process. But your steps in your walk with God start on the base floor, and you work your way up. There's no quick. There's no quick pathway to a deep walk with God. There's no elevator that takes you from the basement to the celestial. No, you've got to start at the basics. And the Beatitudes really are a, a picture that we can follow. They are steps into the divine life, into walking with God. And before you can be the salt of the earth like Jesus says we are, we must take all the necessary steps in our growth. And that, that those steps begin with Matthew chapter number 5 and verse number 3. They begin with humility. And a conscious understanding of your need. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word blessed in the Greek is makarios, which means blessed or happy, Supremely blessed and by extension, fortunate. You are, you're more than just a little happy. You're supremely happy. You've got joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's true happiness. It's true joy. It's great fortune. You, you are, you are, you've got a smile on your face all the time. And, and this word goes throughout the attitudes. To share with us uh, uh, throughout each one of these steps just how happy you are and why. The word poor he uses comes from the, the Greek word tokos, which comes from the root toso, meaning to crouch. It means one that is reduced to beggary, destitute of wealth, destitute of influence, 
destitute of position or honor. But I really like this particular definition. It says helpless and powerless. Jesus is not speaking to everyone that is poor in the natural sense. I, I, I got to tell you, there's going to be poor folks in hell. Uh, uh, there's going to be rich and poor that are alike going to stand before God in the great white throne room judgment and give account for what they've done in the body. There's going to be kings and there's going to be paupers. There's, there's going to be princes and there's going to be beggars alike who are going to stand before God in judgment unprepared. The Bible does not say, blessed are the poor. Remember, I can do all things through a scripture out of context. Some people have, 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 have taken this that blessed are the poor. We, we've heard of the prosperity doctrine, and I've made plenty fun of, of prosperity preachers, uh, and they've been claiming black and grab it, but there's also the poverty doctrine. That's the doom and gloom people. That, that's the Eeyore spirit. That's where nothing's good. That, that's, the, that's the crowd that says, I'm poor and proud of it. That's the crowd that says, if a Christian's blessed, then he must be compromised. Then if brother got a new truck, he must be living in sin. And if sister got a new dress, she must not be living right. No, that's just as wrong doctrine as the prosperity doctrine is. Because the Bible does not say, blessed are the poor. It's not a proper use of Jesus' teaching to say or to believe that everyone that is poor will be blessed in obtaining the kingdom of heaven. There will be kings and paupers alike who miss away miss the catching away of the church. But Jesus says here, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that are destitute. Blessed are those that are broken in spirit. Destined, blessed are those who recognize that I'm helpless. It begins on the ground floor. The first step in the walk with God begins when you realize just how beggarly we are. Just how broken we are. Just how poor we are. Isaiah uh, chapter, uh, uh, chapter 64 verse 6 says this. But we all, we are all as an unclean thing. And all of our unrighteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fame as a lead. And our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That there's a song that, that, that is such as I was nothing, just a beggar, as lowly as can be. When I came to the Lord, I came helpless. When I came to the Lord, I knew I was lost and I was on my way to hell. When the altar call was given, I knew that I couldn't help myself. I recognized that there was nothing I could do. There wasn't enough good works. There wasn't enough time I could pay. There's not enough good things I could do. I was a beggar. I was as lowly. I was destitute. And I needed a Savior. Amen. And blessed is the man who realizes how beggarly he is. For it's those people that will one day inherit the kingdom of God. Rich people, the wealthy, and those who don't recognize how destitute they are. They may have castles here. They may have kingdoms here. They may live in mansions here. They may be kings and presidents here. And they don't recognize how destitute they are. 
but theirs is not the kingdom of heaven. But as for those who can look in the mirror and say, I'm a sinner and I need salvation, that's the first step to obtaining the glories of heaven one day. Isaiah 57, 15, for thus saith the high and the lofty one that inhabited eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah 66 and 2. Of course, I would lose my spot here. So thankful for iPads. They'll probably have it before. Before I do. Isaiah 66 and 2. For all those things have my hand made, and all those things have been saved the Lord. But to this man will I look, even to him that is of a poor and contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. I'm here to tell you that if you can ever get to a place where you recognize what you are and how simple you are, that's the first floor. That's, that's the first step. That's the first step along the, the, the pathway to a walk with God. God sent Jonah to preach calamity and judgment to the people of Nineveh. Forty days, he said, and I'll overthrow the city. Nineveh wasn't a godly city. This, this, wasn't, this wasn't a place where a whole lot of churches were getting built. It was a wicked city. And it certainly was not a city that knew the Lord. As a matter of fact, Nineveh was a, a massive Assyrian city dedicated to the goddess Ishtar, which we know from the scripture is Ashtoreth. Later, she, this, this goddess would be worshipped in the Greek. Uh, the Greek culture is Aphrodite. And she would be worshipped in the Roman culture as Venus. And ultimately worshipped in the, in the Virgin Mary cult after the year 600 AD when the, when the Roman religion uh, merged with the Roman Catholic Church. These were idolatrous people. They were involved in deep debauchery. This, this was a, a religion that was based on sexual immorality. Nineveh was not a good place. This was not a place with a bunch of Bible thumpers in it. These were wicked people. These were evil people. These were the worst of the worst. But when God sent a message, and when God sent a word, the Bible in Jonah chapter 3 verse 5 said, So the people of Nineveh believed God. And they proclaimed the facts. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne. And he laid his robe from him. And covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. When faced with how destitute they were. When faced with the reality that if we don't get right, we're all going to perish. They broke themselves. They humbled themselves. And God responded with mercy. And God spared the city. It begins with a recognition of what we are. James 4 and 6 said, But he giveth more grace. Wherefore he saith, God resists the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. I'm so glad tonight that if I humble myself, therefore under the mighty hand of God, and resist the devil, and he'll flee from me. And I'm going to tell somebody, then don't humble yourself. Recognize who you are. That's the first step in your walk with God. Second Samuel chapter number 11 tells us of David's Elizabeth affair with Bathsheba. 
in the subsequent murder of her husband to cover his sins. All that he did. All that he went on. And God sent a prophet to David. And he began to tell him a story about a man and his lamb. And David, well, he got, he got righteous indignation until that prophet finally turned it around, pointed his old bony finger in his face, and said, Thou art the man. We need to be thankful that a man of God gets in the pulpit and preaches to us. You're a sinner. Nobody wants to hear that anymore. And nobody wants to be judged anymore. I'd rather get judged down here and let my sins go before me into judgment. I'd rather a preacher look at me and say, son, you're a sinner and you need to get right than the one that will stand before God and be able to say, nobody called me. Nobody called me or how I can get to hell. When the man of God preaches, we ought to worship when he steps on our toes. When he steps on us, when he walks a butthole in us with the word and conviction moves, we ought to shout because God is giving us an answer and God's giving us a way to stay. Thou art the man. He said, You're the man. Psalm 51 is probably the most memorable prayer of repentance that you'll ever find in Scripture. In Psalm 51 16, the psalmist David. In response to this message of damnation, he begins to pray and he says, For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou will not despise. If you'll just recognize who you are, recognize your sin. Humble yourself and come to Jesus. He will forgive you. First John tells us that if we sin, if we will confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sin. He says in another place, and if you sin, you've got an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. If we'll confess, if we'll repent, if we'll recognize and humble ourselves, God will abundantly pardon. And happy is the man. Happy is the man who is humble. Happy is the man that's poor in spirit. Because it opens up the opportunity to make the kingdom of heaven our home. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. It's no wonder why Jesus said, Happy is the man that is poor in spirit. Because it opens up a pathway, it opens up a door. Repentance is the first step. When the day of Pentecost came, and though all those men that day, Peter began to preach, he walked a mud hole in all of them. He preached how they had killed the Messiah. He preached them from the beginning all the way through David and he preached Jesus Christ and him crucified and when he got done all of those men they were pricked in their heart they were convicted they looked at themselves in the mirror and they were scared to death and they said men and brethren what shall we do what can we do we killed Messiah we've been waiting for this one to come and Peter didn't say there's nothing you can do he started the first Pentecostal message by saying repent now that you notice where you are 
uh, we, we cry and it's pretty pretty normal at a funeral or or, or, or a wake or, uh, or something of that nature to cry and, and to grieve. But in, in other cultures, it's weeping and wailing and uh, they hire mourners to come in. And, and, uh, and, and in olden times, it, you would sit down in sackcloth and sit down in ashes and you would you would shave your head and you'd take off your good clothes and put on sackcloth and, and you'd go into a season. Maybe it's 40 days. You'd go into a season of mourning. But then this word here, it means it's a mourning so severe that you can't hide it. Everybody grieves. We've had quite a bit of grief this year. Quite a bit of tears this year. But everybody grieves. Whether you're in the faith or out of the faith. People cry just as much at Pentecostal funerals or, or as they do at Baptist funerals or as they do at an atheist funeral. Because grief is natural. It's normal. It's part of our, it's part of our makeup. So everybody grieves. So like verse 3, Jesus is evidently speaking not to the world in general, but to all those who heed the call to repentance in verse 3. All of the people that were there that day would not be comforted. Y'all got quiet on me. Thousands of people joined him on that mountain. Yes. But by the time he was crucified, there was only 12 hanging out with him. On the day of Pentecost, there was only 120 in the upper room. And at the end of the day, there was only 3,000 added to the church. He fed 5,000 men, not including the women and the children. Not everybody here was going to enjoy what he was preaching. It was offered to them. It was offered to them, but not everybody that reads this is going to enjoy it. Because many people that can read it and understand that they're grieving, they may not find that comfort because they don't know the Lord. The comfort doesn't come just from reading it in a book. The comfort comes from the Lord. It comes from the Holy Ghost. I don't want this to be a hard teaching, but this is evidently a procession to those who have Broken their spirit, who have recognized that they're sinners, and now he says, if you mourn, if you have a brokenness and a grief, you'll be comforted. Follow me here to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote two letters to the church at Corinth, the first of which contains a very, very strong rebuke for the church because of a, a rampant immorality that was occurring uh, amongst its members. But in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter number 7, verse number 8, the Apostle Paul follows up in his second letter. He said, for, for though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent, for I perceive that that same epistle hath made you sorry Though it were but for a season. Apparently, this letter is a response to the, the first letter he sent to the Corinthians where he admonished the church against sexual immorality. He uses a word in the Greek here that's lupeo that means to cause to grieve. 
said, I may be sorry I caused you to grieve. My preaching brought you grief. My preaching brought you, uh, uh, and it offended your lifestyle. There, there's a man from the, from the 17th century or the 18th century. He said, he was a, he was a, a preacher. Uh, he said, it is a poor sermon that gives no offense, that neither makes the hearer displeased with himself, nor with the preacher. The preaching of the gospel has got to either make you upset with yourself, or it's got to make you upset with the preacher, or it's got to make you upset at both. If it doesn't accomplish those things, I've wasted my time. Paul said, I wrote you a letter, and I know that it offended you. I know that it stepped on your toes. I know that it, 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 it got right up where you were living. I know that it burned you a little bit. But it was for a purpose. We should never be upset when the preacher walks on our pew. We should, the preacher's trying to get us to heaven. The preacher's going to give an account. The preacher's going to stand before God and judgment and give an account for the message. We should never get upset. It's for a moment. Paul said, I gave you some hard stuff. I know that it hurt you, but it brought you to a place of repentance. He said, now I rejoice. I don't rejoice that you were made sorry, verse 9. I don't rejoice that you were sorry. But look what it says. But that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. The conviction that comes with preaching has a purpose. And what we need more today than we needed in a long time is there to be conviction in the house of God. We've had too many services where the preacher preaches himself into a coronary, warning of the judgment to come, and people aren't moved. There was a there was a time I remember Brother Anthony Mangan was telling the story of when they were in camp, I believe in the 60s or the 70s, during a war in Israel. And, and they were at Louisiana camp meeting. And this was a time I think it was in Egypt or Syria or one of the other nations that was getting close to invade. Uh, and they in Israel. And he said, we were sitting around and, and while, while the kids were on the ball field, all the preachers were sitting around and saying, if they cut the barbed wire, the Lord's coming back. If they cut the barbed wire, the Lord's coming back. And he said, that night in the middle of the church, when things were going on, somebody ran out and said, they just cut the barbed wire. There was a war about to happen in Israel. And everybody in the house of God, they loved what they were doing. And they got into the altar. Why? Because there was a conviction. There was a desire. I got to get right. We can't allow ourselves to come to church and let conviction leave us unmoved. No. When the preacher preaches it, we got to let it stir us to act upon it. It's for a purpose. Godly 
when young people can't sit still because of Peter on fire. Help us have church for people whose lives are going to go hell where they can feel the presence of God. When Paul preached to Felix in the book of Acts, the Bible said that as Paul preached about the judgment to come, Felix didn't get up and go to the bathroom. Felix didn't open up a peppermint. Felix wasn't writing a note in the back of his Bible. Felix wasn't tapping. He wasn't tapping the neighbor. Felix wasn't looking through his iPad at the news. Felix wasn't trying to figure out how close to McDonald's closing time he was. No, the Bible said that Felix trembled when the word of God was preached. He got under conviction. Conviction isn't just to make us feel bad. Jesus said, if you, if you mourn, you'll be comforted. It's designed to bring you to a place of grief, of sin. I'll sin against you and you alone. It's to bring you to a place of repentance. It's the word repentance in your life. Hebrews 12, 11, the writer says, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth that peaceable fruit of righteousness of the men which are exercised thereby. I'm glad somebody preached the part. There's a whole lot of folks out there today that are preaching it easy. And they're preaching the Lord wants to bless you and the Lord wants to provide for you and the Lord wants to give to you. I am sick to my stomach of preachers and the only thing that they preach is blessing and healing and prosperity because that's not the doctrine that we've got to follow. We, we got to have a life of repentance. We've got to have a life of mourning. We've got to have a life of getting it right and of pleasing. God, yes, God wants to bless you. The Bible said that I, I would not God that you would uh, be, be blessed and prosper even as your soul prospered. I, I believe God wants to take care of your every need, but more than anything else, God wants you to be saved. More than anything else, God wants you to repent and believe the gospel. God wants you to repent and be baptized in Jesus' name and receive the Holy Ghost. Prophet Isaiah spoke to the people of Israel in Isaiah chapter 61. This is a passage of scripture that we probably all know very well. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. And he hath sent me to bind up, listen, the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to open the prison, the opening of the prison to them that are bound, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called the tree of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he might be glorified. This is not God promising to come to Israel and make everybody feel better about themselves. As a matter of fact, this is the Lord targeting three specific groups that are all tied into one central thought. He said, I want to bind up the brokenhearted. I'm going to 
proclaim liberty to the captives, and I'm going to open the prisons to those that are bound. Now, this is a prophecy. Isaiah is saying here that when Messiah comes, this is what Messiah will do. But he's not coming to physically bind up the brokenhearted. He's not coming physically to make everybody that's captive be set free. He's not coming physically to let everybody out of prison. As a matter of fact, when Jesus came, that's what Israel was looking for. They were looking for a Messiah that was going to come and be their king on earth. They misunderstood the prophecy. Because this isn't speaking of physical things. This is speaking of spiritual things. He said, I'm going to comfort all of them that mourn. I've said it for years, if you're feeling heavy, and look, I, 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 maybe it sounds good. I've said it for years, and I didn't really understand it myself, that if you're feeling heavy when you come into church, put on the garments of praise. He gave us the garments of praise. And we've said it for years, we say, put on the garments of praise in the spirit of heaviness. We've said it, but, but you can't put these garments on yourself. Man's got to admit when he's wrong. These are not garments that you can just go in your closet and walk into the house of God and say, I'm going to put on the garments of praise. It's not a garment that, 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 that you have permission to do on your own. It's not a garment that you can just put on, on your own way and in your own time. God has to do this. Now, now stick with me just a few minutes and I'll get you out of here. We'll, we'll hit the dairy queen. Praise God. The word for beauty that, that he reads here when he says, I'll give you beauty for ashes. The word beauty, it, it, it actually is translated from the Hebrew word that means a bonnet or headdress. It's an ornamental garment. It's an ornamental thing. Matter of fact, most other translations will read that I'll give you a bonnet or I'll give you a headdress for ashes. It was, as I mentioned earlier, in Bible times, it was commonplace when somebody went into mourning, they took off all their pretty clothes. Remember, remember in the book of Job, chapter number 2, when Job's life fell apart and Job lost everything? Job lost all his camels, he lost all his donkeys, he lost all his cattle, lost all his people, lost all his kids, lost all his, uh, his, 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 uh, his money, he lost all his property, and his wife lost all her morals. And the Bible said, he sat down in the ashes, and all of his friends came and sat down with him and mourned in sackcloth and in ashes. It was common practice that when you went into mourning, into a season of grief, we read that in the book of Jonah with the people of Nineveh that put on sackcloth and ashes. They put ashes upon their head. Stay with me here. So Isaiah has given us the imagery of God taking a soul that is mourning, that is broken, that is contrite, and he gives him a new set of clothes. As a matter of fact, one, one commentator wrote it this way, there we have two contrasted pictures suggested, one of a mourner with gray ashes thrown upon his disheveled locks, and his spirit clothed in a gloom like a black robe, and to him there comes one. There comes one who with a gentle hand smooths the ashes out of his hair, trains a garment around his brow, a 
anoints his head with oil and strips off the trappings of woe and casts about him a bright robe fit for the guest of a festival. And I begin to wonder, what is this festival? What is this thing? What is this garment preparing it for? But I didn't have to wait long because Isaiah 61 and 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of, of righteousness as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. He was getting them ready for the wedding festival. He said, if you're born, I'll come you and I'll comfort you. I'll come you. I'll take away your ashes. I'll take away your mourning. I'll comfort you. I will come to you. If you mourn, if you recognize what you are, if you don't see in the mirror what manner of men you are, Jesus said, if you mourn, you'll be comforted. If you break yourself, the Bible said, upon this rock, whosoever shall fall upon this rock shall be broken. And on whosoever this rock shall fall, he shall be crushed. I want to fall on the rock. I want to be broken on the rock, Christ Jesus. But if you'll get broken on the rock, he said, I'll come to you. I'll give you beauty for ashes. I'll give you all for morning. And I'll give you the darkness of praise. For the spirit is. Sin that we might 
he made righteousness of God in him. His entire purpose on the earth was to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to comfort all of them that born inside. And until born, he said, I will comfort you. I've come to comfort. Sat there on that mountain that day and he preached to the multitudes. First, you got to see what you are. But once you recognize what you are, once you've been pricked in your heart, let a grieving, let a brokenness come upon you. But I'll take those ashes. I'll take that, that darkness. I'll take that brokenness. And I will be a comforter to you. It was time for Jesus to leave. When his earthly work was done, Jesus said in John 14, chapter, chapter 14, verse 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. And he said, I will pray to the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. He said, I give you another, implying that I'm the comforter right now. I'm with you in body. But he said, I'm not leaving soon. I'm about to go back to heaven. I'm about to go to my father. I'm about to leave here. He said that I'll give you, he'll send you another comforter that he may abide with you. Not just when things are good, but forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not. Neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you. He's with you right now. He said you know him because he lives with you. You walked with him for three and a half years. You know the comforter, but he shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. Yet a little while the world seeth me no more. But ye see me because I live. Ye shall live also. And that day ye shall know that I am in my Father. And ye in me. And I in you. If you repent. If you believe the gospel. He said I won't leave you comfortless. But I will come to you. continues on. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. He said, I'm still here a little while. But he said in verse 26, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you, he finishes by saying, peace, I live with, lead with you. My peace I give unto you. As the not as the world give, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. When God filled me with the Holy Ghost, He gave me new garments. He took my mourning, He took my brokenness, He took my sins, and He put them in my past. He put them under the blood. He gave me beauty for ashes. He gave me the oil of joy for my mourning. And He gave me the garments of praise. Yeah. The Spirit hits. I'm closing, I'm closing. Psalmist, the Psalmist David 30 and 11 says this, Thou hast turned from me my mourning into dancing, and thou hast put off my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. Because happy is the man, happy is the man that mourns, for he shall be 
if you'll recognize what you are, if you'll recognize I'm a sinner and I'm lost and I'm undone. The Bible said he will abundantly pardon. If you'll come to the altar and lay your sins on the first steps, and if you'll grieve and you'll mourn and get right, he will come to you and fill you with a comforter that will never leave you nor forsake you. Stay with me here tonight. It's just the beginning. We begin when the conviction begins to move and God begins to pull. And we make up our mind, I don't care who sees, I don't care who hears, I don't care who's watching, I don't care what else is going on around me, I don't care what tomorrow holds. I've got to find my way to the altar. And I've got to get it right. Confess, to confess your sins, the Bible says he is faithful. He is just to forgive your sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you repent of your sins and get baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins, He takes all of those sins and the sins that form in the judgment. And the Bible said that there's a promise that will come to you. And He said, You shall receive. The Holy Ghost. For the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are far off. That's me and you. Even as many as the Lord our God shall call. If the Lord has called you, if the Lord has moved upon you, if Godly sorrow is working in your life, then heed that call. Make your way to the front. If you're a backslider, make your way to the front. Recommit your life. Rededicate your life. If you've never lived for the Lord, find a place to pray and cry out to the Lord. And He will abundantly pardon. And He'll send you a comforter that will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll take your depression and turn it around. He'll fill you with joy and speak on and full of glory. I'd like to pray and praise the Lord. I'd like to